I'd been meaning to put up our interviews and all these other special talks uh, about catch wrestling up on some sort of uh, podcast platform, and I'd actually been looking around, and um, now I think Anchor.fm is uh, probably one of the best bets for you. Uh, you the inter- user interface has actually gotten much better. Um, it's free. They also have all these different tools, that, which I think work much better than they used to, uh, to edit and everything, so you can uh, put up a nice podcast, which we'll get more into later, so hopefully everything gets smoother later on. Um, also, they distribute your podcast for you, so it shows up on Spotify, Apple, uh, Google Podcasts, everything like that, and you can also get sponsorships. So uh, go ahead and check it out. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm Raul, and we're here with the Catch Wrestling Alliance pod, and we are keeping real wrestling alive. And my guest today is Sam Yang from uh, Southpaw Podcast. And he is a martial artist, and he, at his podcast, he provides like great insight and analysis, uh, not only written, but in podcast form. Um, so welcome, Sam. Hi, good to be here. All right, so can you tell us a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, so it is, first of all, it's a progressive left-wing podcast, and it's trying to provide from that perspective, from a martial arts perspective, thinking about politics, but also combat sports. Um, Some call it a left-wing version of Joe Rogan. But kind of like him, I, I talk about topics that interest me, but because of my framework and the way I view things, it's always going to come from that framework. So I interview people and try to learn about different topics, uh, especially interested in um, imperialism and history, thinking about all the because if you look at it from a martial arts perspective, um, there's one way to look at martial arts, which is that it's bottom up, which is trying to prioritize people who are most harmed and and uh, oppressed and trying to put them at the forefront and protect them the most. So if you use that framework historically and politically, then you want to look at the stories of the people who have been most oppressed, marginalized. And then you also want to look at positionality. Who is the the oppressor? Who is the most powerful country? So then you have to look at a lot of the things that the U.S. has been involved in. Historically, um, they're not the oldest country, so uh, they're not always going to be the most powerful country so then you have to also look at that context as well when you look at history. And then we also like to watch uh, MMA. We like to watch UFC, uh, sometimes boxing, sometimes pro wrestling, and try to analyze that from that, tape, from that type of uh, historical material analysis. All right. Well, I think that can like, give a really good framework for what we see in, in pro wrestling and even uh, MMA. And you've written an article entitled MMA is pro wrestling so that's what i want to talk about today because you just wrote that uh, with this past week and but even with your framework kind of what you mentioned it's like uh and what happened in, and in particular with catch wrestling how basically even around world war one time the legitimate catch wrestling competitions had almost all gone to become what we call works right or, or predetermined matches right and a lot of that is because of an economic uh, standpoint from the promoters. They wanted to uh, have shows like all over and uh, frequently uh, because they were making money that way. 
Um, so I, that's why I kind of want to, there, there are basically a lot of things about what you wrote um, that uh, we can talk about, like so many different aspects. And so without further ado, I'd like to kind of go over some of the points. So this mm -hmm. uh, will definitely link down below uh, to this article in particular, and also to the their YouTube channel and their uh, Patreon site. Um, so this you can find for free on their Patreon. Um, so you basically write kind of like five points that you've noticed between MMA and pro wrestling. Mm -hmm. right? so, uh, if you're, you're cool with it, then I'll go ahead and just, I'll, I'll read the, your first mm -hmm. point that you make, and then I'll let you kind of expand on it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so first point that you noticed, right? The tournament format that you saw in Japanese MMA and even UFC didn't come from legitimate sports but from pro wrestling. You're never going to leave brackets to chance when you're selling pay-per-views. So you book it like you would in pro wrestling. This is why Ken Shamrock thought the first UFC was going to be a work. He saw how the sausage was being made behind the scenes. Imagine booking games like that in March Madness. You'd have a congressional hearing, but in MMA, we take this rigging to be normal. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so this all came up while I was on uh, another podcast stream, and we were discussing old Japanese pro wrestling. We were watching them, and they're more from the pro wrestling standpoint, pro wrestling fans looking at it. And I'm also a pro wrestling fan, but also have this martial arts uh, background, but also uh, uh, know a fair bit of history about, the, about MMA from UFC 1 and even before. I've been I've been writing about this topic for probably over a decade, so I have a lot of institutional memory about it, as well as doing a lot of research on it. So, in pointing it out, um, one of the things that they even brought up was how the tournament format wasn't just started in rings or some of these shoot style pro wrestling. It goes back in uh, American pro wrestling. Uh, this wasn't as popular anymore, but in Japan, it's like a staple. And I don't know if it was something like uh, the, the tournament-style video games is what inspired it for a Japanese pro wrestling or Japanese pro wrestling inspired the tournament-style video games. But even when we play video games like Street Fighter, that tournament-style bracketing is something we're used to that has been exported to the West, right? So when you think tournament in the U.S., you're thinking more like a basketball tournament or a football tournament or something like that. But that is our projection of a tournament it doesn't have to just mean that it could also mean this kind of like street fighter here are all the fighters you know in bracket one or in the in the in the brackets and then they have to fight their way to become number one and uh this is this that idea that movie trope idea was very popular in japanese pro wrestling and it stayed there they still use this format to this day whereas we don't use that format in american pro wrestling as much Oh yeah. Well, I think, um, that, and I think, so you also mentioned in there like pay-per-view. So I think that kind of even goes back to, uh, the whole money-making idea. Not that you can't make money in professional sports or whatever, but, um, uh, in this case, say like with MMA and with like boxing and stuff, they're trying to sell pay-per-views. So whatever they can do, uh, to like sell tickets or sell pay-per-views, uh, that's kind of like going to be the, the main, um, the, the main drive right so it's like it, even in england i remember they they talked about promoters only caring about 
bums in seats, they say, right? So <laughs> not bums like like the way we mean it in the uh, United States, but bums meaning like bottoms in, in filling up the seats, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so even prior to UFC 1, their tournaments, Japan was already doing it in their shoot style pro wrestling. So everything prior to UFC 1 or even around that time, if we watch clips, we assume that that's all... Sh- that's all shoots that that's all real pro wrestling or that's all real MMA, but they hadn't even, they hadn't transitioned to real MMA yet at that point. So it's like, we're being anachronistic. We're, we're projecting the present onto the past. Japan hadn't quite done that yet. And even then it wasn't overnight. It was this slow transition. So even if you watch Pancrase, like some of the early uh, events, and then you watch some of the later events, like when Carlos Condit was fighting on it or uh, Nate Marquardt, the rules, the way they fought, the pace, it looks completely different. So that means even with Pancrase, which we in the West think is completely legitimate from day one, you look back and you're like, no. And even like the way they advertised it, they never even told you that this was like all shoots. They said some of this will be shoot. Some of this will be work. We'll sometimes tell you which ones are shoots and works and sometimes we won't. And Rings explicitly said this was pro wrestling. They never claimed to be um, uh, real legitimate MMA until they actually transitioned to MMA in the, in the 2000s. But prior to then, they always said they were pro wrestling. So it's this weird thing where we're, I think because it is a tournament, we assume all tournaments must be legitimate when it's actually the other way that our, the MMA got its uh, tournament roots from something that was all works. And probably even if you go back far enough in pro wrestling, right, to its catch roots, then yeah. It, it was legitimate, but then for a lot of reasons, especially economic and th- and its connection to the carnivals and, and, and traveling shows and so forth, like if I'm your student, Raul, and you taught me, and so we could have a match, but because you taught me and I'm green, I know you're going to kick my ass 100% of the time. Like you, even in the dojo, you know, you'll have somebody like who's a, a higher belt and they'll beat you 100% of the time. So we already know. It's not even predetermined. Then we already know that you're going to beat me. Then after a while, if we're going from town to town and after having done a hundred legitimate matches where I lose every time, I'm like, and I'm sometimes accidentally getting hurt or I accidentally hurt you. Probably the beginner is more likely to hurt you, right? Then why are we going to keep doing this? I can't keep doing this and I go balls out on you and almost accidentally hurt you when you're the name. So after a while, if we already know who's going to win, then why don't we just like choreograph it so then it doesn't look so so shitty? You know, sometimes mm-hmm. when it is like a beginner versus somebody very experienced, it, the match itself doesn't even look good to watch. So then you could orchestrate it, and you could see how then, then that could lead to more works. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. And then, um, um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the thing because like I think I would like for people to understand like the difference because I, I, we live in this um, environment where it's like. Uh, NFL and the, you know basketball are like you know much larger sports, but you, you you think of it that way where it's like yeah they do have their tournament and then their their championship and then it starts over the next year. But then in MMA, um, then it's like you'll have a champion and then they they remain champion. It's like it doesn't start over. It doesn't have that kind of uh, legitimate <laughs> sport type. Then so that would be like a legitimate type of tournament where you, even yeah. like the Olympics right where it's like you'll have the gold medalist and then they got to fight back to get yeah. back to the same spot four years later. 
And so I want people to understand that, that that's the difference between, say, like a legitimate sport tournament and and uh, one that's like trying to make money, you know, and trying to be entertaining, which, you know, it's great. You know, it's all we all love watching it. But uh, there, there's a little bit of manipulation uh, with regards to the way some of it's being done in pro wrestling and MMA. Yeah, even in uh, UFC 3, I believe, right, they purposely put Ken Shamrock and Hoist Gracie at opposite ends of the bracket so they would meet in the finals. Whereas, like, you can't put, like, let's say basketball, two of the most popular teams on opposite ends unless their rankings ranked in that way to not meet like that, right? But if it's supposed to be all randomized, you can't manipulate it like that. So then from that point, you're, if you're already manipulating the brackets, then the whole thing is rigged, right? Like, you could, you could have them fight for real, but rig... Uh, the the order of their fights in a way where one person has like an easy path to the vic- to to meet in the finals and the other person the same deal you know what I mean yeah, yeah. oh totally totally all right let's go ahead and get to your second point because that, that that is your second point right so rankings in MMA so uh, so this is what you wrote rankings mm-hmm. in MMA are also human doings rather than by automated value systems it's booked. Uh, consider how easily it would be to automate a system to do rankings in a closed system like UFC. Yeah. So for those unaware, UFC is currently in a antitrust lawsuit um, and it's for a monopsony. Really, it's a monopoly, but they went for a lesser degree of monopoly because that's like easier to win in court. But so because it is a monopoly, it's a closed system. So think of it like Apple, right? Then Apple controls everything. So then within its own operating system, they could do whatever they want. And it, uh, there's less left to chance. So then because they know all the variables, then it's very easy to automate things. So then in UFC, unlike boxing, where I could fight for one ABC title or another, or I fought a guy who's not in my uh, in my you know WBO, they're in another different you know organization. Then the rankings get much harder to do. Whereas in UFC, everybody's signed to long-term contracts. So then even if we took today's rankings as legitimate and then started from there and then did some kind of automated value system, which a lot of sports do, then it's, you don't need a person to rank people. You could just have this value system uh, work it out uh, arithmetically, right? And uh, the reason why I think they don't do that is because they don't want legitimate rankings. And Bloody Elbow, actually, uh, the MMA outlet has been doing a really good job always asking, like, trying to dig into who are these people in charge of this? How do they come up with these rankings? And they can never get a clear answer, which seems to be that the UFC is purposely obfuscating it so that you don't know who these people are or how they're getting the rankings. So they determine the rankings the way they want to. And so then it's easy to like place people to have fights, you know, the way you want to, because you can rank them in certain ways. And even then, if, if the rankings don't work out the way they, uh, wanted to because they're not updated quickly enough. They don't care. Then they'll put like you know number five versus number fifteen. Yeah, and then that's when you see uh, a lot of the fighters like then start complaining like, hey, how did this person just like jump up so high? Or like, yeah, yeah, you, you will you will see that over time. Yeah. So uh, if it is supposed to be like this, le- brackets and rankings are very much overlapped in their logic of trying to be fair right? Then you can't jump over people. There has to be like 
mandatory defenses against like the number one contender or number two or whatever. You have to have these clear lines. Whereas right now, it's is a la carte, it's chaos, it's whatever the UFC wants it to be. So instead of using their monopolistic power to make clear rankings, they use their monopolistic power to match up whoever they want. Then if you can match up, like if I could put the Lakers versus the Knicks in the finals, right? And they play a real game. It doesn't matter. Nobody will consider that legitimate. Whereas in MMA... Uh, and sometimes in boxing, we consider that legitimate just because we're so used to that kind of orchestration. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's that's exactly right. I think that's a great point. I think people don't realize that the, that that's happening, right? And then they, it's just been happening for for decades, like about a hundred years, all right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so then it's just they take it. They take kind of like the fight game, whether it's wrestling or boxing, to just be that way, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think people are excited to just see people fighting. So they're like, oh, yeah, I'd love to see this person fight against that person. So if they make it happen, then people are, are happy about it. But with regards to having like a legitimate sport where you have uh, weight divisions and rankings and stuff like that, then uh, uh, it's not as le- legitimate of a match then, right? If, if they don't kind of like earn that spot. I mean, in, uh, in WWE, the way they book the matches just the same way as UFC books, like who's going to fight who, right? In these smaller pay-per-views, right? They start with WrestleMania, like a year ahead. And then they figure out who are the two stars that are going to meet in WrestleMania. And then from there, they work out all the year shows so that those two people make it to WrestleMania and then they have a match against each other. And that's very much how the UFC tries to do things is to orchestrate it in a way where these are the people who are going to legitimately fight in the in the main event but how do we get them there how do we orchestrate you know they don't have all these like they don't have summer slam they don't have survivor series so within our own variables how do we make this make this happen right and then even with the with legitimacy of the actual fight i'm reading this great book by uh by uh historian gerald gerald horn and it's about the history of boxing and one of the things he talked about was that there was when the, the, the fighters, the boxers are getting paid the least is when there's the highest amount, the highest likelihood for fight fixing. When the fighters are getting paid incredible amounts of money, then they don't want to fix the fight. They want to become a manager and get a cut of their salary, right? So then it's talking about the economics. Fight fixing becomes a part of the economics because even the fighter can't make that much money. If I'm only fighting for a couple hundred bucks, then yeah, I'm going to throw the fight because I'm going to get paid, you know, if I'm getting paid a couple hundred, to fight for real and I could get paid five, 10,000, you know, like 80 years ago, if I throw the fight, then I'm, yeah, I'm going to throw the fight. Cause you know, if I'm fighting for this little anyway, I'm not a contender anyway. So I could take a couple losses like that. Right. So, uh, I don't know. I can't say for sure. I have evidence that MMA fights are thrown or not, but if you're paying people that little, then again, the economics are going to open it up where then it's, it makes it more, it makes it too tempting not to try to make money some other way. Yeah, yeah, that, that kind of goes into the whole career aspect too, where it's like, yeah, you can you can actually be like an MMA fighter for for many years, but you might not necessarily be like at the, Conor McGregor famous, but you can still be fighting consistently. Yeah, but you, you would only be making like a few thousand each time, so it's it's a difficult way. But I mean, it's something that it is done, right? Yeah. So. 
if we're thinking about things as being economically determined, then you're putting a lot of incentives for why there would be fight fixing uh, in combat sports. Yeah, because then you could be you could be the guy they go to 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 lose, right? They can keep you there as like the either like a uh, kind of like a, almost like a gatekeeper or or just someone that that can that you, you can be like a tough person, but then like uh, if they want to promote somebody over you and like they they allow them to beat you, then you know they can really uh, kind of start selling that other person, right, for the bigger pay per view events. And the UFC doesn't even have to be involved. It could be just you and, you know, whoever, like people involved in the gambling world, which is his own world, right? And they could mm-hmm. just come in. Uh, and there, if you, throughout the years of being on MMA message boards, there's been times where bookies have gotten mad and they'll post like some money moved in, like an incredible amount of move, money moved in on this like, you know, prelim fight or whatever, this like fight that doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. then this, this guy, because sometimes like the biggest uh, like disparities in in uh, odds are in the prelim fights because once you get up, you know, in the main events, you know, your fight number two, according to their rankings, will fight number three. So it's much more competitive at the higher you go. You will see these mismatches lower in the cards. So then sometimes you'll see somebody who's like a plus thirteen hundred favorite, and you usually only ever see that in in um in the prelims or some something in the lower cards, especially like lower. of complaining a lot mm-hmm. all right cool, cool let's go ahead and uh, uh go to your third point here um another interesting crossover from pro wrestling to mma and submission grappling is our leg locks this is an example of life imitating art in pro wrestling leg locks were popular because it's a move that didn't cover up the face like arm bars and allowed the person in the lot to face the camera and sell the move, right? Since uh, they mostly, so um, this is kind of a long paragraph, but I think we can probably, people can probably get the gist if you want to keep on going. Um, yeah. Yeah, you, well, actually, I might as well just read the whole, <laughs> the whole thing. So this aesthetic carried over to Japanese MMA where pro wrestlers fought MMA. Since they mostly knew leg locks for reasons I explained, leg locks became a signature. This inspired a lot of American grapplers to take up leg locks. This current craze blurs shoot, old shoot style matches further. You see this in how pro wrestling matches from Japan are often counted in official MMA records. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you cut out for a little bit. So what was the last thing you said? Oh, um, the that um the leg lock craze inspired a lot of american grapplers to take up leg locks and you see um mm-hmm. uh, you see this in how pro wrestling matches from japan are often counted in official mma records yeah so there's a lot going on in that in that little point that i made that can be all unpacked right but going back if we go let's say we just go a little bit back then we look at 
the leg lock craze in the in the U.S. and now it's spreading to Brazil, how everybody's trying to master leg locks. And a lot of them will talk about Imanari or Sakuraba or some of these famous like fighters for, out of Japan that were fighting not only pride but rings, judo, um, some like things like that. But then where did they? Where did those legitimate shooters get that from? Well, they who did, who taught them the leg locks? And their their instructors were not pro MMA fighters. They were people like you know Akira uh, Akira Maeda, right? People who were doing pro wrestling. And all the submissions they knew, well, they knew a lot more, but they knew um, leg locks for one because it was like, you think of Ric Flair, you do the figure four, and then the person can sit up and look right at the camera or at the audience just screaming. You look at Bret Hart's like sharp, sharpshooter or the Boston Crab, and the person just like lifts up. There's a the famous iconic uh, moment that really launched Stone Cold Steve Austin's career when he was in the sharpshooter against Bret Hart facing the camera facing the audience he had been cut open his, his face is bleeding and that iconic moment where he's like bleeding and and then passes out and the camera caught it is where they, it flipped where Bret Hart came into that match as the face Stone Cold came into that match as the heel and they flipped where Stone Cold left as the hero and the Stone Cold era began and Bret Hart became the bad guy and his heel era began right or one of his many heel eras so you can't have that happen with an arm arm lock or or even like a choke like a like a sleeper hold you know leg locks are perfect for that so um but also leg locks are legitimate moves because it also in a especially in a shoot style match if i get you in a leg lock your my legs are right next to yours so you could counter me and it could create this chain wrestling scramble so it could also tell a story but it's also uh has a lot of utility for those reasons, in a legitimate match, you also want to be in leg locks because then when your legs are entangled, so far, so long as I'm better than you at leg locks, I will play this footsie game because I will win in the end. So I, I feel like it was one of those things where it's a style of move where it was like win-win. Not only does it give people moves where uh, the audience gets more excited, but also these are legitimate moves where I can really beat you in this area. So it became much more popular for those kind of economic reasons, I believe, uh, than a lot of the arm bars. But I think instead of like in, in catch wrestling, when you go back to the old days, instead of like straight arm lock, which they knew 100% they knew, but they liked the, the double wrist lock or the Kimura, right? Mm -hmm. And you see this, you see this like even in like uh, pro wrestling matches in the US in the 50s. Or in Japan in the 50s, these black and white videos where they're holding the Kimura. Why? Because like if you have me in the Kimura and I'm facing towards the ring or the camera, then I could really like sell this move and I can just start doing this. And then especially like if it's a tag match, you hold me like that, you take me over there, you tag your person in. So that you saw a lot of that as a transition move to get the partner in or to like get me to sell this hold. You know, you either saw that or you saw them doing like a wrist lock arm ringer, right? But same idea, this arm twisting move. And sometimes you'll see them use that move because just like a leg lock, the Kimura is a move where you could chain off of it, right? Mm -hmm. So Volk Hahn was a great example of somebody who would like use that, what they call a trap, but he was already using that because that's what catch wrestlers were. Even before it was called a Kimura trap, they were already using it, even in both shoots and works because in, in shoots, it, it works so well to chain into other legitimate submissions. In works, it just looked cool. 
to go from this to monkey flip you over to an arm bar to a ch leg choke, it gave you all these optionalities, right? And also, you was a way to like bend them over. So if you wanted to knee them or do some kind of illegal move to the back of their head, it gave you all those options, which was, which you didn't have those same options with like a straight arm lock. You know, y either you arm lock them or you pin them from that position. You didn't have as many other moves from there. But with the Kimura lock, then you could even transition to an arm lock and then keep going to other things. So uh, leg locks, Kimuras are examples of where these are moves that were very aesthetic and work well in works. And then people who grew up watching those works fell in love with them and applied them back into shoots. So it's mm -hmm. like it started out as a shoot, went to a work, and, and came back to shoots. But the thing that they that people miss is they think the order is I we there were shoots and then I got it from shoots and it's like no 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 there was a transition where it went for shoots to work you actually in America got it from the works the mm -hmm. people who were doing the works in Japan got it from the shoots does that make sense uh -huh. so they're, they're closer to the reality whereas we're, uh, in America they got it from the art yeah yeah and uh, it's like you can't you can't emphasize that enough I mean that's that's what we see a lot in the United States. Like it's just, it's just it's exactly the way you said it, where um, yeah you see you see kids or at least you know when I was growing up you see kids imitating the American pro wrestling, right? And then they and a lot of times uh, they're upset when uh, they find out or if if you happen to say that you know it was a work match, right? Then they're like no man because then it goes it totally has like this uh, cognitive dissonance that happens where it's like they grew up loving these people and believing in everything that was happening. Uh, so it's like uh, it's it's it can be devastating, right? When they when they find out something else. Yeah, uh, and which is a weird cultural thing because if you tell somebody in Japan who's a pro wrestling fan this is a work, they don't care. It's like cool. I, in a way, maybe they like that more because they could uh, they appreciate the aesthetics, how well uh, they sold the move. Whereas here, saying it's a work is a diss. So that's the other thing, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it, even for American pro wrestling fans who are hardcore, calling something a work is not a diss. Whereas to regular casual fans who are not even MMA fans, but just to regular people, you tell them like Hulk Hogan was doing works and they get upset, right? Mm -hmm. To MMA fans, you tell them it's a work and it's like a diss. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, they think of it as something bad. Then they have to make up all the stuff to step, you know, to, like you said, cognitive dissonance to, to create distance from that original story. And it's like, but that is the order of things like, you know, grappling always goes back and forth from work to shoot to work to shoot and that's just the history and there's nothing wrong with that but i think for a lot of people they have to do this like pollyanna thing uh where they i don't know it's like finding out like your your dad used to make a show of like how strong he was you know like pretending things were heavier than they were and it's finding yeah. out you know it's finding out like santa claus isn't real but the idea of Santa Claus is real. The idea of like giving and charity are, are, are real, right? And there was a real person back in the day that is based around. So I think there's a lot of nuance and, and gray and complexity to it where, and especially with, with grappling and catch wrestling, uh, the complexity is always around. Like, I'm not doing this for fun. I'm doing this for money. So this idea of how money also reinvents it and also like dictates where it goes. I think that's a lot for people to, conceptualize yeah and i think people have to realize too that it's like um say back yeah, around world war one when a lot of these uh pro wrestling matches were going from catch wrestling to work matches 
uh, there were people who needed that money and so then they stayed in pro wrestling but there were a few like i'll just throw a couple names out where we have uh nat pendleton you might not know about him so much but um but also um a champ heavyweight champion earl caddick um he say earl he had um like his own like automotive business or something in iowa i, I went to his hometown super tiny um, but he had his garage there set up and he had he had something to fall back on and, and um, he was offered to do work matches uh, with Joe Stecker. They wanted them to do a tour, but both of them said like, no, we're not going to do this. We're just going to retire. Right. Mm -hmm. So they had something to fall back on. Same thing with Matt Pendleton. He was like super smart guy. I think he was um, he, he graduated from Columbia University. Uh, I think he also ended up like doing movies here in Hollywood and also uh, even like working at like as a spy or something for the United States. So this guy had a, a lot of things he could be doing. All right. So then he's like, all right, I wanted to be a catch wrestling you know, world champ. Uh, looks like not going to happen. And also Frank Gotch had already died. He had like, I was like one of his idols. That he, but anyway, so he's like, I have other things I could be doing and I don't want to do work matches. So I retire. That's it. Yeah. If you go back to the history, to your point about World War One, and in that period from World War One to World War Two, uh, before the Great Depression, prior to boxing selling out MSG, you you actually had real legitimate shoot matches that was like more popular than boxing. That was like filling up. They they probably was at one time the most popular sport. Mm -hmm. I mean, legitimate sport yeah. in the U.S. And probably a lot of the Americas, it was very popular. But then once the depression hit, you were just looking for any ways to scrounge and make money. Right. So then it's like, well, people don't, how do we get people to spend money on something that they probably shouldn't even be spending money on because they need that money to live. So you have to up the, the uh, entertainment value. So it was almost also like, can you blame these guys? Like they, they had to do what they had to do to survive. So then they're like, okay, let's make this more interesting. And then it, there's also a spectrum of works where it was like, maybe, um, you know, we just knew the, uh, that I would win in the end, but everything else in the middle we'd make up, or it could be like the other way where it would be a work, work, work. And eventually then we do a shoot at the end and then we decide, we see who wins. Like there was all these like combinations and it was actually was this mixed bag even up until I would say the seventies, uh, to the early eighties and even regional areas. I think there was, it was a mixed bag. I think, uh, when after WWF at the time that their first WrestleMania is when like that was completely eliminated. But prior to that, you had people like Bob Backlund, where he was the champion on purpose. And at the time, everybody wanted somebody who had legitimate shoot skills just in case somebody tried to do something, and which happened all the time. Bob Backlund, Iron Sheik, there was a lot, a lot of legitimate shooters that they wanted to be champion. And I think Hulk Hogan was like the first era. That, there was, that was why there was like, they, Hulk Hogan, I think, had to get it from the, uh, the Iron Sheik because I think some of the other legitimate shooters didn't want to give it to him. But even back then, I heard, even though Hulk Hogan is not going to be as good of a shooter as some of the guys back in the day, even the era that he came in, he still knew some, some actual legitimate holes. That's why he was on a talk show and he accidentally put uh, the, the host to sleep because those are the moves. And he even talked about when he was coming up, he was put to sleep a bunch of times by people because they, they wanted you to also 
no legitimate shoot holes and moves just in case because they didn't know WWF becoming WWE was going to become what it became. They thought you were going to do regional shows and you didn't know who you were going to wrestle. So sometimes you might have to do uh, a work and sometimes you might have to do a shoot. So they taught you in both. So even I think Bob Backlund, Iron Sheik, that was like the end of that era. And then from Hulk Hogan on, then it became like completely uh, just works. But I think people assume that just complete works started much earlier because he was already being televised. And it's like, no, it was like a lot of mixed bag prior to that. And even like, I think um, Ric Flair, Roddy Piper, they've talked about that, that they had to do both for a long time until it just became just works after a while. And uh, I mean, speaking of, uh, of uh, Roddy Piper, he actually got a black belt from one of my old instructors, Gene LaBelle. And because Gene LaBelle was like, you need to learn how to do this just because you don't know who you're going to work with. The whole idea was like, and I think part of why that, that uh, learning legitimate shoot techniques lasted as long as it did was just because you didn't know who the hell you were going to work with. So not only did they also know legitimate shoot uh, holes and moves and even like how to like just brawl. But they also, a lot of them also had like knives and guns in their bags because they didn't know what the hell was going to happen. So there was this all this, always the sense that you might have to like protect yourself. And you read a lot of these old time pro wrestlers, uh, their autobiographies and stuff. And you hear about like Piper getting stabbed, you know, after a show or stuff like that. And that just happens because you didn't know what. So a lot of them had to also legitimately learn these holes for their own self-protection. Which, unfortunately, there are stories of, like, pro wrestlers getting killed also, you know, legitimately, like, not fake killed, like, real, real killed. So it was, so it was just kind of like that kind of world for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, kind of Wild West, right? But, yeah, they also had, yeah, different regional champs and all that. Like, just, just like how you were saying before, it kind of coalesced into WWE, Especially right? with the regional shows, you might have one guy from one region might have to fight the champion of another and mm-hmm. so you didn't know how it was going to go. So a lot of the regional people did only wanted to put their legitimate shooters who, I mean, of course they knew how to do works, but also only wanted to give the strap to the legitimate shooters just in case there was going to be double crosses, which yeah. happened. Sometimes a, a better shooter from another town, you know, they were supposed to do a work. It turns into a shoot and then they're going for real. But that guy from the other town is a better shooter and he pins you or usually not a pin, usually, you know, submits you for real, you know, mm-hmm. so. They take your, your straps. So because of enough of those stories, they got so paranoid that for the longest time, it's like only legitimate shooters were becoming champions in these regions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, just for like how you, how you said, I don't think I have to say anything more. I think it's pretty clear. Let's go ahead and get to uh, your last point in your article. So point number five, you said it makes sense Japan went back to pro wrestling while MMA declined because that's where it came from. And the lines were always murky because it is murky. They're forever married and have the same origin story, constantly crossing over. There's also an added Dunning-Kruger for American fans who make fun of pro wrestling for its fakeness, but mistake Japanese pro wrestling, martial arts, demonstrations, and fight scenes in Bruce Lee movies as legitimate. In pro wrestling and carny parlance, they'd be known as marks. Um, we kind of talked about a bunch of these points already, but um, uh, is there anything that you'd like to just kind of did, did make you think of or go, go ahead and uh, expand? Yeah. Uh, I think there's a, also uh, 
something that changed in Japanese culture that a lot of Westerners aren't aware of, which is that MMA actually is not that popular in Japan. They still remember pride. And so when you tell them, like, no, like the big stadium shows and stuff, like that's like for pro wrestling. Pro wrestling has far surpassed MMA now. Because if they're remembering pride days, yeah, MMA was much more popular than pro wrestling. But it was for like this very truncated short period of time. But a lot of those uh, MMA fighters went off to do pro wrestling in Japan because that also paid more. And so going back to what I said about works, like in Japan, calling something a work or something being pro wrestling is not a bad thing. In fact, they prefer that to MMA. I know a lot of pro wrestling fans who don't want to watch any MMA because the violence is intentional, whereas they want to watch something where they don't feel like I'm a they, they, they still see themselves as a pacifist. Whatever violence or like injuries that happen is unintentional. I, but what I appreciate is the expression and the human movement and the art and the choreography and the storytelling, all these other reasons. So Japan always had this love for, a, for pro wrestling, so long as pro wrestling has been there. And that's where they went back to. So even Pride was so tailored around trying to convert, uh, convert pro wrestling fans over to MMA. And so much of it looked like pro wrestling. And they actually, Pride also had legitimate pro wrestling matches. Like I could, there's links, there's videos. You could look it up hundred percent. It's pro wrestling, even though it's counted on their MMA record. doesn't matter. You watch it and you know, but anyway, so because it was always designed to look like pro wrestling, then it was, it's bi-directional. Then of course, from there, it's easy to just go back because you never have to completely give up on your love of pro wrestling. So I think a lot of MMA fans don't know that pro wrestling is much more popular there. And also then in Japan, they don't see pro wrestling as being a bad thing. So they know Sakuraba as, uh, as a pro wrestler who also happens to do shoots. Whereas here people only want to want to think about him as a shooter. They, They think about that, about everybody. They assume like all of our legends who would be too good to have fought who to have done works in Japan, in Japan, they see them as like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did some works too. That's cool. We like that, right? So I think that's like one thing that people miss here. And I, that goes to my thing about a mark. It's like the person who thinks they're too smart to fall for you know, a, a work match are the ones who actually fall for it. And the ones who are trained to know what it looks like know which ones are works. Yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly right. And that's kind of what we... we yeah, you... I'd like to like even uh, expand on that even a little bit more because like so one of my good friends Osamu Matsunami who's who runs the uh, Riley's Gym Kyoto so he he told me that he got into catch wrestling um, he's one of the persons who's been training catch wrestling like the longest uh, with legitimate coaches and he even went back and forth between Japan and and Wigan England uh, for over twenty years even before I met him. Um, so anyway, he was a big pro wrestling fan. And so that's what made him want to do pro wrestling. And then he eventually figured out like the whole catch wrestling aspect about, of it. And then that's when he was going back and forth to Wigan. Um, but there's even like, um, uh, like he even mentioned, like he thought it was called Lancashire wrestling. Yeah. And so it's like, there, there was kind of, there was like this mixing, uh, uh, of like the whole catch wrestling aspect with the pro aspect also, just like how you're talking about MMA and, and pro wrestling. So the, the lines are so blurred that like even 
um, you'll have people that are like Osamu mixing up the, these two things, right? Um, but then you'll have other people um, now, now what I see online too is like a lot of people calling anybody from Japan like a catch wrestler. Mm-hmm. So it's like, like no. There's even some people who, who do judo, and you know, yeah. they always forget about judo. <laughs> you know, they could have learned submissions from judo, also. Yeah, yeah. So we're kind of seeing that too. Where it's like, uh, uh, I've seen several like um, like MMA news organizations where they're just like, oh, this this Japanese person, oh, they're the the next catch wrestling god, and it's like, do they even? do catch wrestling or is like a lot of yeah. times they're training at some jujitsu gym or something it's like mm-hmm. they're not even uh training at any place that's recognized as like a catch wrestling place yeah yeah it is this uh and i think it just goes back to like that that uh they just fell so hard for pride they just bought into that whole storyline of like uh, like, how legitimate is Sakuraba as a catch wrestler? Does he know legitimate catch wrestling moves? 100%. I could find, if you find a 60-year-old pro wrestler, he could teach you a whole shitload of, like, legitimate catch wrestling moves, right? But it's like, how pure is their lineage to catch? Or how would they even call themselves that? Probably not. They're just like, I learned this, you know, while I was pro wrestling. I don't know that Sakuraba has ever said the word catch or claimed to have been that. But... I think because there's such a cognitive dissonance of that, he learned these catch moves from pro wrestling and American MMA fans' hatred of pro wrestling, then, then they make him a legitimate catch wrestler. And then, ergo, every Japanese submission specialist becomes a catch wrestler because, because they just don't want to think that, yeah, some of them maybe learned from catch wrestling. Maybe some of them learned from jiu-jitsu uh, or judo. And maybe some of them learned it from pro wrestling, right? But, mm-hmm. but that that... That the fact that it could be pro wrestling just bothers MMA MMA fans so much they would rather erase it and rewrite the history. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And it kind of remind, reminds me what you what you're talking about. Like some of these big shows in Japan, like every year they have the New Year's Eve like extravaganza, and uh, there was one where like as MMA was fading, it was a mixed event where it's like mm-hmm. yeah, some MMA matches, some pro wrestling matches. And I remember seeing on Twitter a bunch of the uh, U.S. MMA fighters, and they were they were tweeting during the pro wrestling match. They're like, "Oh, this shit! This is a disgrace! You shouldn't mix pro with MMA." And but yeah, like how you were talking about, it's like the the lines are are actually more blurred than they realize. And like in order, how you mentioned about Sakuraba, it's like in a way to kind of soothe that dissonance, right? The, uh, they, like, all of a sudden, Sakuraba has to go from pro wrestler to catch wrestler to kind of uh, make it feel okay in, in themselves, right? Like, in their mind, like, to make it okay. Yeah, I, I, a great prior to Sakuraba was Kimura himself. He was a judoka, legitimate judoka, but the move that's named after him, the Kimura, he didn't learn that from judo. He learned that from pro wrestling. And Kimura doesn't have... You could say he has catch lineage so far as like pro wrestling in general has catch lineage, but that move he learned while he was pro wrestling. He wasn't as some catch wrestling legit, like where they only do shoot fights, you know? Mm -hmm. He learned it from pro wrestling. And so that's the move that he used in in, uh, Brazil, and that's what's named after. But because they can't, for whatever reasons, for all the reasons that we've already explained, they don't want to give credit to pro wrestling. So they're like, oh, he was a judoka who also knew some catch wrestling, right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But then, like, what? Then his f- matches with Ricky Dozan or, like, all the pro wrestling matches he did, those were all legitimate, legitimate shoots, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. now that we have internet, you can, it's, like, hard to bullshit like that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that brings me to another point that I think you've mentioned in the past. Um, with re- So I've known you for a little while, and so that's <laughs> nice, nice uh, background. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just, like, uh, anyway, so anyway, um one thing is that like um now I, I you've you mentioned in the past where it's like it's somewhat easy to claim some catch wrestling lineage right where like say maybe in 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 brazilian jiu-jitsu nowadays it's kind of like you know who you learn from and and all that but catch wrestling is very very fuzzy so that's why you're gonna have all these kinds of people like and I, I I feel like it's increased recently, or it's like you have mm-hmm. all kinds of people saying like, "Oh, I'm a catch wrestler." And it's like, yeah, do you like, you know, especially because you know I've, I've trained so many years with in with Wigan, and then also I have the I have the highest certification from John Strickland, who has like the lineage to Frank yeah. Dodd and Farmer Burns and all that. So it's like, you know, where you know what where did you learn what you know, but. Um, let me tell you what happens is they do some kind of no-gi jiu-jitsu, like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. They, let's say they do 10 Planet. They have a mm-hmm. falling out. They're pretty good, but they have mm-hmm. a falling out. Now they have no affiliation. Then they call themselves catch wrestling because they're no longer part of like some no-gi jiu-jitsu system. I've, that's what I've seen the most often. Or they learn a type of grappling that is hard to market. Like uh, you know, a lot of people who came out of my old dojo where it was taught by uh, Jean LaBelle and Gokor, right? They just call it grappling. You know, I have, a, I have an instructor level certificate from there. But it's like if I just call it grappling, it's such a generic word, right? Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of people who came from that program and they claim to be catch. And I'm like, dude, like most of the stuff we learned is Sambo. And, and the, the ranking we got is from like, that's a judo ranking. Why are you calling yourself catch? I've seen that a lot as well. So whenever they feel like they're very good at no gi, Submission grappling, even if they've never learned anything from catch, that's what they call themselves. I remember even like this happening a long time ago where, a lot, uh, you know, before there was like even schools to train jujitsu, people were like learning from videotapes, training with each other. And they got good because if you roll enough, you get good. And they didn't know what to call it because they didn't have an official rank in jujitsu because it was mostly self-taught. And just from rolling and doing tournaments, they got good. So they just started calling it catch wrestling. I've seen that a lot, too, because I feel like. I guess to the, to for a lot of people they don't see that as a big deal. They're just like it just means like grappling that isn't. Uh, that's how they take it, right? It's like grappling. That's not jujitsu. I'll just call it catch, right? But yeah. for you, you're saying it's not. You can't the de- the the void of that doesn't make it this, right? Like yeah. not not eating. Like I'm making food just because it's not Mexican food doesn't make it automatically Chinese food. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's a great way to put it. Where it's like there, there's different. They're actual different cuisines, right? And mm-hmm. Mexican food and Chinese food are both recognized cuisines by what the UN, right? It's like they're, yeah. <laughs> they're so individual or they're so unique that they're recognized like cultural heritages, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, like kind of what we're talking about. It's like, yeah, it's like the whole thing about pro wrestling and then the, how everything kind of just. Um, like how these pro matches when they used to be catch wrestling matches and then it kind of got blurred and then eventually now it's all works. And um, so that ultimately just blurred the whole line. And then nowadays we're having people 
well, I guess for lack of a better term, right? They're just calling themselves catch wrestlers. Well, right? they're doing works again, right? It's back to that. They're working an angle. They're not mm-hmm. real catch wrestlers to your, to your point. They're just somebody who took on that name for marketing reasons, right? This goes back to like the whole carny aspect of it. And yeah. they're, they're more pro wrestler than they are cash wrestler, right? Cause they're just doing it for marketing reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I do like uh, 10th planet a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> I rolled a lot. Uh, I like, I like the, their attitude with regards to like, they'll, they'll be okay with whatever you do. And, you know, I went in there doing a lot of catch wrestling moves and uh, they were totally fine you know, with, with all that. And, um, so I don't want to say anything like, I don't want like, yeah, like how you're saying, or maybe like someone who's maybe who, who left 10th planet and then uh, they, now they're calling themselves catch wrestlers. Yeah. Well, I mean like by, by trademark, like what can they call themselves also? Right. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. if you're, if you're no longer part of the IBJJF, let's say, mm-hmm. if you're no longer part of these organizing bodies, like trademark wise, legally, like you can't call yourself those things. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you should call yourself catch. But there's nobody who will sue you if you call yourself catch either. Whereas with those other things, they can. So this has nothing to do with Ten Planet. I'm talking more about intellectual property, right? These are all trademark terms. So mm-hmm. once you leave that and they say you can't call yourself that unless you're part of our affiliation or lineage or whatever, yeah. right? Then what do you call yourself? And yeah. so they call themselves whatever thing that's not going to get them sued, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, yeah, that's an, another great point where it's like, yeah, we uh, – Catch wrestling now is like it, it's its own term, so it's like it's not like uh, anybody owns it and nobody should own it. <laughs> so hopefully, yeah. I'm not giving anybody ideas to try to copyright it. Hopefully, no one's trying trying to do that. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, no, it's exactly right. It's pretty safe, and I think it's well known enough of a term that that uh, it can maybe give someone uh, maybe some kind of sense of legitimacy, um, but. I'd prefer that if it wasn't happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you saw this a long time ago, back in the 70s and 80s, like before there was the internet. People like would make up their own martial art. They would say, I made up. But because people were so unaware of what martial arts were out there, they might make up some like version of karate or kung fu, which mm-hmm. they just made up, but create a, you know, be- people just take them on their at their word for it because they didn't know any better, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think same thing with catch wrestling is like, uh, even if you create that for yourself, there's no database for them to check. They don't know. They just take it at face value. And, yeah. and if you all actually know some stuff, even if it's like you said, it's different cuisines, like you could be legitimately tough, but you might not be legitimately tough in a catch way. You might be legitimately tough in a jujitsu way, mm-hmm. but because you're tapping me and you're better than me and you call yourself catch, then, then I just go with it. Right. Me as a potential student, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like if, from a Mark's point of view, right? For, since you mentioned that too, where it's like you have all these people putting stuff online or, you know, the, uh, like the different videos and stuff. And then someone who, who doesn't know the difference and, you know, the term I would say is a, a Mark, right? um, then they might like, they might get ripped off by these people or, you know, they might buy their, their DVDs or whatever. And it's, even though they, they just don't have enough of a knowledge base to know that it's not, the, the real Mexican food, right? Yeah, they don't know what flavor of ass kicking they got. They just know, like, you, I got tapped. So then I just take your word for whatever it is, right? Yeah. 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 That's one of the things we're, we're kind of uh, dealing with. And then that's the thing, too, then. Um, say if someone invested so much uh, from someone who's just calling themselves catch wrestling, and uh, then, they, then they also have that cognitive dissonance later when you see, like, 
say uh, for a long for the longest time, uh, Roy Wood, who's like the successor of of the one of the most famous catch wrestling coaches so back in Wigan. So when he wasn't teaching catch wrestling, he he pretty much just focused on freestyle because the real catch wrestling matches just weren't happening, right? Yeah. But he still stayed in a, a real form of wrestling. Um, but he decided that you know, he wanted to teach catch wrestling again to kind of pass it on before before he got too old. Yeah. Um, but then that even created some cognitive dissonance for some people who had been so invested in uh, these more kind of maybe pro wrestling people or people who um, were uh, just taking on the name catch wrestling. Uh, and, then, and then they defend these people, which I think is so amazing. Or right? it's like, well, we, you know, without like, without the, like beyond a reasonable doubt that someone like Roy Wood is super authentic. There's even black and white video footage of him being coached by uh, Billy Riley. But, and, uh, but then you'll hear some people kind of like trash Roy or whatever and, and for any random kind of, teacher that they have or that they like yeah. which I, I think is so weird i mean going back to like so the way i i frame my podcast right everything is like from political economy so even like those that type of stuff that you're describing like i could see how if you have a monetary vested interest to do that that people will do that they might not know that they're being compelled and it's, and to some degree there is like your own choice to to do that or not but it becomes very tempting then at that point if it makes financial sense for me to shit on this while promoting myself, then a lot of people will do that. You know, you know, like economics will determine a lot of behavior. Right. So, um, that that's why, like for me looking at martial arts or combat sports, all of this, how can I not look at it from this political economic, like framework, because it explains so much, all the stuff where it's like, I don't get it. You know, you, you get so much and then people, then they get stuck on a point where they're like, I don't get it. Yeah, that part that you don't get, that's political economy. That's the thing that finally connects all the rest of the dots, right? So I'm not saying this is moral. It's more of like the uh, this, I guess, like this, like hustle and hustle and grind. Like everybody has to be like ultra entrepreneur and you know start their own business and make bazillions of dollars. People then will do whatever it takes, and that means like talking shit to other people about stuff online that they have no, you know, um, no right, you know, talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, uh, it's been about an, an hour. So I think uh, we'll go ahead and try to end it about now. So if you could please just kind of let everyone know like where to find you or what your website is. And we'll also have links down in the description below but if there's anything in particular, like even with your your personal social media, but then also the, your podcast social media, if you can let people know how to find you. Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter, Stuff From Sam. Um, you can find uh, inf more information about the podcast at southpawpod.com. Um, if you can, if, you, if you're interested in what we do. Um, because like when I say we, I'm mostly running it, but there's other people helping out and also we're involved in helping out a lot of other organizations, right? So if you can consider supporting us on Patreon, cause that'll not only support me, but it'll also help support some of our other writers and also help us support other groups that need more attention and, uh, uh some more uplifting 
Um, and as far as social media, you could find us online uh, at Southpaw Pod. So you could, you know, you look that up for uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and it's all the same handle. All right, awesome. All right, so well, thank you for uh, for giving me all this time. Very generous. Thank you very much. All right, thank you for having me, Raul. All right, so we'll, we'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Okay, bye-bye.